special episode of Chewing the Scenery Horror Movie Podcast. We normally talk about horror movies of the past and present, but this is a special episode where we're interviewing Joe Bob Briggs, entertainment icon and film critic, who you may remember from Monster Vision on TNT, where he hosted some really crazy movies and had a lot of fun stuff to say about them. Well, he is really an encyclopedia of film knowledge, specifically horror films, so I think you're going to really enjoy listening to this interview. Now, we do specifically talk about Night of the Living Dead, because we knew at the time that that episode was upcoming. And really, honestly, Joe Bob Briggs deserves an episode of his own. So, we're going to give you that here shortly. In the meantime, I do want to warn you that upcoming will be a special New Year's episode of Chewing the Scenery Horror Movie Podcast, where I'll have the guys back with me. Yes, I did give them the week off, so we could just run this and let you enjoy it. But we're going to be talking about a few episodes of The Twilight Zone. Now, The Twilight Zone has become sort of a special ringing in the new year thing for me because they do run the marathon on television. So I usually pick out a few favorites and watch them. And those usually include Terror at 20,000 Feet and Nick of Time, which both star William Shatner. But I do also enjoy The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, which really is pertinent to society even today although that was made back in the 60s. So, we're going to watch those, maybe one with a ventriloquist dummy, maybe one with an evil doll. We'll we'll let you have a little warning before we do that so you have time to watch. Now, I regret to inform you we will be discussing New Year's Evil, even though in the meantime I discovered that it is a Golan and Globus or canon film, whatever. Um, So... It may be more fun that this thing isn't going to be awesome. So please give that a watch if you can find it. Um, I know you can dig it up on YouTube if you need to. So New Year's Evil and a few episodes of The Twilight Zone. So without further ado, here is the interview that I conducted. I'm Richard. I conducted with Joe Bob Briggs Halloween weekend at the Colorado Horror Con in North Glen, Colorado. And thank you for listening. Before I do this, backtrack a little thank you to the moon rays for their intro creature feature at the top of the show i really do appreciate them giving us permission to use that for every show because it's just a great intro so thank you moon rays you can uh, find their music at the moon rays.com or buy their music on itunes or amazon all right here goes joe bob riggs halloween weekend thank you for listening all right, Chewing the Scenery Horror Movie Podcast. This is Richard. I'm here with film critic and entertainment icon Joe Bob Briggs. We are at the Colorado Horror Convention and Film Festival. Um, Joe Bob, you who you all know from Monster Vision on TNT, which was on from uh, 1993 to 2000. Am, am I right on that? Ah, uh, boy, I it was about that. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say 95 to 2000, something like that. Yeah, cool. Now. Um, 
Interesting thing, we had uh, Bob Elmore, who played Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, which we will be talking about on the podcast, but not everybody remembers the gonzo moviegoer in that movie, which was... Well, that's true, but I, I, was, I was cut out of the movie. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the people who've watched the movie must suffer because they, they lost two scenes that I was in, but... Uh, those were scenes that we actually just added into the movie. I ha- I happened to be on the set. I wasn't hired to be in the movie. I was actually down there on assignment for Rolling Stone magazine to interview Dennis Hopper. Amazing. And so because I was on the set every day, you know, talking to Dennis, um, uh, Toby Hooper said, are you that guy that writes those articles? You know, you like <laughs> ch- Chainsaw so much? I said, yeah. And he says, uh, you know what? You know, ha- work with Kit Carson drop a little scene i want to put you in the movie and so kit carson was the screenwriter oddly enough he wrote texas chainsaw massacre 2 and the movie paris texas <laughs> you know the, the vim vendors uh you know art art house classic but um uh we sat down and drew up this little uh two two scenes and um we shot the scenes and then when the movie came out canon films was trying to cut the running time it was too long okay and so they cut those scenes out and toby hooper called and apologized and said i'm sorry i wanted those in there i don't know why they wanted to cut them out and i said well i know why they wanted them cut out toby they had they weren't in the script they had nothing to do with the movie you <laughs> added them at the last minute it's, it's no no mystery to me at all why those scenes were cut out now if we've learned anything about making it up as you go along world war z <laughs> oh my god yeah so uh People should also check out Great Balls of Fire, The Stand, Casino, Face Off, uh, The Storytellers, many others that you've uh, graced us with your presence. I've been tw- in 20 seconds of many movies. <laughs> well, you know, if you calculate how much you got paid, you're probably getting paid more per second than a lot of those actors are. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Just checking. Okay, so today we... Uh, we are going to be talking about the 1968 horror classic Night of the Living Dead, which, along with a few other films, can be said to have changed the horror genre. So uh, what's your personal history with this film? I don't have any real personal history with the film. I, I just I, I regard Night of the Living Dead as the birthplace of modern horror. Okay. There are two places of, that horror was born. One was in Burbank. <laughs> the classic Universal films. Yes. Not technically in Burbank, but close enough. Right. And um, the other is Pittsburgh, where uh, Night of the Living Dead was made in 1967. And, you know, you can't watch Night of the Living Dead today because it's a cliche. <laughs> uh, you know, you can't, like, erase all the other zombie films from your head and watch Night of the Living Dead as it was originally meant to be seen because everybody has copied Night of the Living Dead and so everything in it is a cliche, but it's not really because they invented all those cliches. So uh, it's there had only been three zombie films up to 1967. Right. And since 1967, there have been three million zombie <laughs> films. So obviously it changed the, the, the it, it created the genre of the zombie film, um, uh, uh, and you know that the way the zombies move in *Night of the Living Dead*, that herky-jerky walk thing yes. that they do, uh, that became the classic. That became 
if most people ask, if, if you ask most people, imitate how a zombie walks, that's how they're going to walk. You know? Yes. Well, nobody knows how a zombie walks. So, no. you know, why did that become the way that zombies <laughs> walk? You know, they have to be slow and they have to be... Shambling. You know, they have to shamble. That's right. Exactly. They have to shuffle and shamble. And uh, uh, many things like that. Um, however, it was a genuinely scary film. Um, um, really... An accident, an accident of history, because George Romero didn't set out to be a horror director. No, he just knew that that was an entry-level way to get into the business. He was a commercial, commercial direct, commercial and industrial film director in Pittsburgh, and um, that was the cheapest, easiest, fastest way to get into the business, which many other people later discovered. Uh, Toby Hooper did the same thing with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in Austin, and. Um, uh, that is the traditional way to get into the business. Um, George Romero would then be typecast as a horror director and would stay in the horror <laughs> field the rest of his life, and so would Toby Hooper. But uh, 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 it's the original indie horror film. Which is great you mentioned that because uh, my next question for you was what do you think this has done for independent film in general? And now we know specifically for horror you've already said, but independent film in general... Well, you have to you have to decide what you're talking about when you say independent film because independent film at that time was an expensive prospect. You had to shoot on 16 millimeter film or 35 millimeter film. That was very expensive. The equipment was very expensive. The renting the equipment was very expensive. It was bulky, hard to use equipment. It took forever to set up shots. Uh, it took forever to do the makeup. It took forever to do everything. It was even if you were an indie film director or producer, you had to have quite a bit of money, too much money for the average amateur filmmaker. Um, today, that's no longer true. All the technology is cheap. So indie filmmakers today don't have to do the preparation that those filmmakers of that era, the Wes Cravens and the, and the uh, uh, Toby Hoopers and the um, George Romeros of the world, um, they they had to raise a certain budget and they had to uh, storyboard their films and 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 be very very disciplined filmmakers. Um, it's a blessing and a curse. It's a curse because it it narrows down the number of people that can make films, right. uh, and we don't want that. We want the maximum number of people. You know, we want the cost of making films low enough that the maximum number of people can be making films. I, I thought when the technology got cheap about 15 years ago that we would have a massive number of great indie horror films simply on the principle if you have a million monkeys typing, you eventually end up with Hamlet, right? And so, <laughs> yeah, that's the theory. Uh, but actually, it didn't happen. Somehow that did not happen. Um, uh, once the technology became cheap, we did have a million new films, but we didn't have nearly enough great films or, 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 even, or even excellent films. I mean, we, we had a lot of really bad films. And it was because all of the things you had to do when those films, when it was expensive to make the films, um, required you to be very precise in what you chose to do in terms of what you shot, how you shot it. And once that went away, the discipline of the art of filmmaking went away and a lot of the rules were forgotten. And guys didn't go to film school. They didn't even study the, the, the craft of making 
films. They just picked up the camera and started shooting. Well, uh, you know, we've gone through that now. We've seen that that doesn't work. You know, we got to go back to the <laughs> to the basic fundamentals of filmmaking. And uh, you know, I, ha I occasionally do seminars with young filmmakers, and they say, and I say, you know, you don't have a single trained actor in this movie. Uh, you know, you're using your friends, and that's not wise. And they'll say, well, I don't have any money, Joe Bob. We don't have enough money for that. And I said, you know, where do you live? You know, and they'd tell me their town. I said. Do you have a university there? You know, do you have a college? Okay, do you have a community college? I guarantee you all of them have drama departments. All of them have committed actors. Guaranteed. You know, uh, there are definitely places other than the guy next door that you, where you can go and find <laughs> professional actors. The other thing is they don't art direct their scenes. Um, uh, I said, you've got to art direct the scene. I don't... Well, I was shooting in my bedroom. Okay, we're shooting in your bedroom. Those dirty socks in the corner, was that part of the scene? Can you give me the reason those were in the scene? You didn't art direct your bedroom, you know? It's, um, it's there for ambiance. Yeah, so, uh, so you know, um, there, the, some, of the, some of the principles of filmmaking don't cost any money. You know, it's like you, you can't use the excuse you don't have money. Um, really, your script, you, you, you know, uh, what, did it really... Did it, the, the, you, can you excuse your script on the basis of not having enough money? You wrote the script. It's just your time, you know. Uh, you didn't work on that long enough, you know. So a lot of the reasons these films are bad have nothing to do. I don't accept the premise that I didn't have enough money to make a good film. Um, the, the reasons they fail usually have nothing to do with money. Right. And uh, a good point you made about that the technology is so inexpensive these days compared to what it was. Um, my nephews recorded a, a metal album uh, themselves, and it sounds very good. And well, the so technology for filmmaking, if you were making a feature film as late as the year 2000, you would have to rent a camera. They wouldn't even sell you the camera. You would have to rent an Aeroflex uh, for $20,000 a day. Okay. Right. Now you can own... Well, I mean, if you want to, you can shoot a film on your iPhone, but I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> but you, you can you can own a, 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 a good, solid quality red camera, for example, which is a, a, a if you shoot with that camera, you can release your film anywhere in the world and you can get a used red camera for eight thousand dollars. So that's the difference in the, the difference is really five percent. And the of, of what it used to cost. Um, and the biggest savings is in editing technology. Post-production brought many a filmmaker to his knees uh, prior to the year 2005 or something like that. But with all of this uh, software uh, that's available, uh, Final Pro, or if you want to splurge, Avid software, um, you, can, you can edit your movie um, anywhere. And you don't have to spend vast sums on post-production. So all of the costs of filmmaking have become um, lower and lower, and therefore the barriers of entry to becoming a filmmaker have become lower and lower. We should have better films as a result. We don't. I can't tell you exactly the reason, but we don't. That is a very good point, and those are excellent words to the wise. Y your content 
has to be top quality before you even lay your hands on this wonderful technology that's available now. Um, to bring it back around to uh, sort of our uh, subject of this is the Night of the Living Dead film. If you could travel time, uh, I'm sure there's a lot you would do, <laughs> but uh, and suggest changes of the script to writer John Russo, are there any things about the way uh, the story plays out in Night of the Living Dead, anything you would suggest be different? I don't know. I, I think the original Night of the Living Dead script is, is a wonderful piece of screenwriting. Um, I also think that the minor changes that Tom Savini did in the Night of the Living remake right. in 1990 um, are excellent changes. The strong the, female lead, for example. Yeah, and and the and the twist ending. Uh, you know, right. he, he changed the ending a bit, and um, the the uh, uh, Tom Tom Savini's remake. That's how you should do a remake. You should be reverent towards the original movie. You know, when we revive a m beloved American musical on Broadway, whether it's Mame or Gypsy or Carousel or whatever. We expect, there's certain things we expect. We expect it to be, you know, the same production numbers and the same emotional feeling and all those things, you know. It's different actors, it's different, it's different set, different look to it, but we, we want to have a familiarity with the experience. The key points. Yeah. Right. Uh, people who do remakes almost do the opposite. They want to make it as different as they can from the original reverently uh, uh, beloved uh, 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 film, you right. know. And so they change this and they change that and they change this other until, until it's unrecognizable. It doesn't have the soul of the original. Um, Tom Savini, is, that's one of the few times um, where uh, it's, it's, a successful, it's a successful remake. I would say another one is uh, David Cronenberg's *The Fly*, right? Which was a much improved version of that story, which much improved over the 1958 version starring Vincent Price. Definitely more horrifying in a lot of ways. Well, because it got to the psychological horror of right. of, of *The Fly*. Yeah. Now that actually is interesting. That brings me to the next question I had for you was. Other than John Carpenter's The Thing, can you think of remakes that outdid the originals? And I think you preemptively answered that question. But are there any others that come to mind? No, not really. There are very few. I mean, uh, you, you can have a remake that's technically proficient. Maybe it has better actors. Maybe it has better production values. Maybe it has better sets. But it still doesn't have the soul of the original. I would say the, the, the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake was very well done. Right. Very well done. Very well acted. Very well produced, very well directed. It just didn't have the soul. It didn't have the gritty realism of that original movie. And so it didn't, uh, you could admire it, but you couldn't love it. It didn't resonate the same. Right. right. The, the, the first movie made you queasy. You right. couldn't say you loved the first movie either. You might have even hated it, but it stayed with you when you left the theater. You couldn't say that of the much slicker uh, remake of 15 years ago. Right. And that, very good points. And uh, I do know that we have a limited amount of time. So um, as a last question for you, uh, can you suggest some, uh, what you could call hidden gems of horror or exploitation movies that you could suggest to our listeners? 
favorites of yours? Oh wow, hidden gems. Uh, I uh, there's a there's a there's a film you would have to watch it on on DVD called Warlock Moon from the early 70s uh, that. I like a lot, and I, I did a DVD commentary track for it for Media Blasters. The late, the late beloved, me, I, they may still be around, but uh, I'm, I'm sure it's out of print. But um, Warlock Moon is, is a very interesting 70s film. You know, everyone talks okay. about 80s films right? Uh, and loves those. But the 70s was actually a more interesting decade for horror because anything could happen in the 70s. Oh, yes. Um, but... Um, uh, uh, there's a movie called Hell High. I don't know the name. I don't know the year of it, but probably around 1990. Okay. Maybe 89, somewhere around there. Um, that's very underrated, um, partly because it was a horrendous experience for the director, the producer, the actors, and it was poorly marketed. Uh, but it's 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 an excellent, very satisfying. Um, uh, horror film. Um, I also did a commentary track for that one. Um, the um, uh, um, the great thing about horror fans is they're constantly coming up to you with new things that you've never heard of, some of them 30, 40 years old, uh, because unlike the fans of any other genre, a horror fan wants to watch everything in the whole history of horror. And are he, very forgiving to a lot of things. Yeah, he doesn't <laughs> just want to watch what came out last week. He wants to watch what came out in 1930 and 1940 and 1960 and 1980, you know. Right. And so uh, uh, they're constantly, with the Internet, you know, constantly discovering new things and, and unearthing new things and giving new life to new things. Um this is not a horror film, but the the resurgence of the Apple, if anybody knows that film, okay. is one of the most remarkable things of recent years. That was once considered the worst musical ever made. <laughs> it was made it was made in 1980 with Menachem Golan. Um, it's a it's a it's a sort of apocalyptic, biblical, rock and roll, gay, punk musical. <laughs> you wow. know, and and it was a disaster at the box office. It starred Mary Catherine Stewart, and um, and uh, it was uh, Menachem Golan. And I don't think he was lying when he said this. At at the first screening at the Montreal Film Festival, they 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 walked out and they booed it, and they started they started booing it and hissing it like within the first twenty minutes, and continued to abuse it throughout the throughout the full minute and 25 uh, hour and 25 running time and uh, Golan went back to his hotel room went out on the balcony and was going to kill himself when his partner uh, stopped him uh, because he'd put his whole he, he thought it was like the the beginning the beginning of a new career you know and um, uh, and then it, and because of that it got a kind of a weak release, and then it was never shown for 20, 25 years. And then it was rediscovered. Fortunately, before Menachem died, Menachem Golan died in 2012, I think. But uh, fortunately, it had a revival and actually had a screening at Lincoln Center um, uh, prior to his death. And it was, it was it's one of those things where 
the guy who made it probably doesn't understand that we're appreciating it today in an ironic way. But, you know, but they, but they could say to Menachem, it was ahead of its time, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and, uh, uh, but it's a it's a wonderful viewing experience. Actually, the choreography is it's nonstop music, uh, and the choreography is amazing. And uh, it's done by Nigel Lithgow, the guy who did "So You Think You Can Dance," you know, the, oh, okay. the judge on that show. But he does not put this on his resume. Anyway, <laughs> the Apple, the Apple, okay. 1980. You definitely sold me on that one. I appreciate it. Well, Joe Bob, thank you very much for your time, uh, and we will. Of course, we're all going to check out the Apple now, and uh, we're going to put on uh, some, you know, so, some different eyes when we watch Night of the Living Dead with some of these things in mind. And uh, again, thank you very much. Thank you, Richard.